0: Hello, welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I wander off on one. My name is Niall, and today we'll be looking at Goblin Market by Christina Rossetti. So, we looked at My Last Duchess by Robert Browning last week and we're sticking with the Victorian theme. I nearly sort of explored the work of Christina Rossetti um a few months ago and I can't remember when exactly it was I think I was going to look at Rossetti's work instead of the work by another famous woman poet of Victorian times Elizabeth Barrett Browning and Rossetti and Browning are often sort of mentioned you know in in the same breath let's just say Um, both of them obviously just seen as, as key poets of the Elizabethan era not just because they were brilliant poets also because they were women so it was a time when women poets were finally getting recognition and fame and that women were being respected as writers of poetry of course we've looked over other poets that wrote before um, Rossetti and wrote before Elizabeth Barrett Browning but really we're talking Canonically, let's just say it's a time when women seem to enter the ca- the canon of literature. And while the um, problems that face or the the, the fight for recognition that a lot of female poets and writers would, of course, continue well after that, it was certainly at least a time of a watershed. In which women were being recognised more. Now, there's a contrast that's made between the work of Christina Rossetti and the work of Elizabeth Barrett Browning, in the sense that um, uh, Rossetti sort of followed on from Browning and is often sort of <laughs> praised as the best, the best uh, woman poet since Browning in her time. And uh, Browning is seen as more of a sort of intellectual. Poet, perhaps the one, the one whose work is more sort of concept and ideas-driven um, work, that's also more socially engaged. You could say with Browning as well, more, perhaps more political in its aspects as well. Whereas uh, Rossetti is perhaps seen as more imaginative and more lyrical, and Rossetti is seen as while her poetry isn't as complex as Browning's or as com- Brownings or as complicated as Brownings, it is seen to sort of have this great uh, lyrical natural quality to it almost that the, 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 the Rossetti had a greater command of the musicality a greater natural command of the musicality of language and a lot can be said for her use of imagery as well and the mythological aspects of it I wasn't going to necessarily do Goblin Market so I, because it's such a big poem, and sometimes I do sort of don't, i 't go for the most obvious poem by a certain poet. I prefer to kind of maybe go for maybe a major poem, but not their most recognized work. Of course, there are some poets like yeah you know, William Blake the Tiger, where I have just gone for that very famous poem but um I think it's um I think I just couldn 't avoid this one one because I just felt that reading some of her other poems, especially her famous poems there 's just something about the energy of this poem. You can see why this poem is. Her most famous poem, and she was a very famous and respected poet in her time. Um, the anthology that this was part of, Goblin Market and other poems, came out in eighteen sixty-two, and she won sort of immediate fame for it. She was part of um, the Rossetti and the Polidori family. Now, Polidori, a name you might recognise if you're an enthusiast um, of the Romantics, especially if you're a few, you know if you're an enthusiast of uh, let's say if you, if you love Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, and you've delved a little bit into the story of how Frankenstein came into Mary Shelley's imagination, it was sort of from a nightmare she had um, after there was a sort of get together of a few of the Romantics and their friends, um, and they they had a sort of ghost story or a sort of gothic horror story competition. And it's when she had a dream and started writing Frankenstein underneath a tree the next day, something like that. And um, and so the Polidori that was present at that party, um, who was a good friend of Lord Byron and was his physician. So Rossetti was related to that Polidori on her mother's side. I think her mother was half Italian and her dad um, was the Rossetti side of her family, obviously. Yes, yeah, so he was Italian as well. He worked as um I think he worked as a teacher as well. Her brother who she was very close to was the pre Raphaelite painter um Dante Gabriel Rossetti. His actual name was Gabriel Charles Dante Rossetti. He was part of the pre Raphaelite Brotherhood um this sort of English art movement that got its name and because they, they they looked for sort of more engagement, not necessarily a certain historical aspect of work, but engagement more with the mythological aspects and a sort of sincere moral character to their work. And so they sort of they, they, uh, empathised or they wanted to follow um, the ways of the medieval, med- medieval artists and the early Renaissance artists that came before Raphael. Now, um, some people say that there's an influence of, of pre raphaelite brotherhood in her work. Um, I think they painted her portrait um, quite a few times when she was young as well. They were enthusiastic about her poetry and her brother was a great champion of her poetry. So, but but another aspect and an influence in her life and her work was her tractarian Christian beliefs and the Tractarians were basically an effort to reincorporate aspects of Catholicism into, into Anglicanism, Anglicanism, which is the Church of England. And so um, they came from a sort of theological movement called the Oxford School. I think the Oxford Movement or the Oxford School, and they wanted to, I think, in particular, sort of the Eucharist. And some aspects of the Catholic mass and Catholic theology, they wanted to reincorporate those parts, some of those parts, back into sort of English um, religion. Um, I think it was also called Anglo-Catholicism, but it was distinct from Catholicism. Um, We know this because one of the first, uh, she was proposed to a few times throughout her life, but she never married. So she rebuffed, rebuffed proposals. There's one gentleman who proposed to her, but she didn't accept on the grounds of his Catholic beliefs. So he decided to convert for tra- to Tractarianism for her. And um, and then she got engaged to him. And then um, he kind of took up his Catholic beliefs again. So So it was all over. Maybe she caught him munching on some wafers or something, you know, in a secluded room. I don't know. So... Her Tractarian beliefs definitely influenced her work and there 's a lot of arguments about the sort of pre raphaelite influences of Goblin Market and the Tractarian influences of goblin market so this poem was published in eighteen sixty two um when she was still quite a young woman i think and um after this, I mean she published other poems other volumes of poetry they weren't as successful, but she was still greatly respected her family. Mainly due to the ill health of her father, sort of lost. They they sort of came into misfortune, financial misfortune. And a lot of health issues affected the family, especially including, um, Christina Rossetti. There is some debate as to when some of the times that she got ill, one of the first times she got ill, whether it was, um, sort of psychosomatic, so more a psychological condition or something that was an actual physical condition. But certainly later she developed a condition that had um, a terrible effect on her. Um, I think that was in the 1870s um, that changed her physical appearance and and made her look very different, I guess, to the um, young woman that appears in the um, pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood sketches and portraits and paintings. So I'm going to get into this poem now. One reason why I chose this poem is is I was reluctant to choose it before and in the end I just flaked out and I went for Elizabeth Barrett Browning instead who's a fantastic poet. But I'd I'd begun that week researching Christina Rossetti and I guess it's because I wanted to avoid Goblin Market because I have weird memories of listening to a recording of Goblin Market on a a TV, Radio 4 programme, not TV, a Radio 4 programme called Poetry Please which is hosted by Roger McGough. And Poetry Please is sort of everything I tried to make... Like everything that poetry please is, and this is no slight at mr. McGough, just more of a sort of radio four way of doing things and the especially the the the, the pastime of getting actors to read out poems um is it's the sort of, yeah i just i 'm not a fan of poetry, please, and i uh, and I find that it 's almost everything but everything I want rusty sonnets to be is sort of the opposite of radio four and and, and some other. Uh, BBC ways of looking at poetry although there's still good stuff like the verb if you ever listen to the verb so um yeah so I remember hearing a recording of it and I think the recording just had a really negative effect on me it was just very well spoken posh um lady actor um and I just um and it was all very clipped and I do wonder maybe I mean there's nothing wrong with having that kind of accent but it's just this is a general way in which poems are sort of read out by actors in this sense And um, I really didn't like her voice that she had for the goblins. And I'm not going to have a special goblin voice myself. But I just remember her doing this, come by, come by, goblin voice. And did that make you cringe? Made me cringe saying it. But it was worse listening to it. I'm going to read the poem because there's a lot about this poem. Um, I I often give my disclaimer about some poems being uh, a painter's mountain. So poems are like mountains. Some poems are like painter's mountains. You you can view them from a distance. You don't have to get up close and personal. You know, a painting of that mountain really shows you, let's say, many of the things. That's that's how people appreciate that particular mountain. as something that looks very beautiful in a distance. And then there's other mountains maybe that don't look great in a distance, um, but but the, the real experience of that mountain is when you get up close and personal and you climb it and you get to know all the little crags and all the little byways up the mountain. And so I say sometimes poems are like that. There are poems that you can kind of glance over and they're beautiful and you kind of get the message of them right away you don't really have to go in deep and explore the poems and take them apart and then there's other poems where you do have to do it and sometimes of course you get poems that are both so you could get a mountain that's great to look at from a distance and it's great to climb as well i think this is one of those kinds of poems so i will read it out i won't give too much too much well i've given quite a bit of background already But I'm going to read it out now and then um, we can talk about how it might relate to her life. And there's lots of theoretical interpretations of this poem as well. Um, From this point on also, I try and keep this and I I still endeavour to do this and I will endeavour to do it in this podcast. I try and keep this being a podcast that you can listen to with your kids in the room. So I try not to use any rude words or anything. That said, there is a sensuality to this poem. Maybe maybe people won't pick up on it. And there's certainly um, interpretations of these poems that perhaps um, reflect on more licentious qualities. Now, I'm going to try and keep it clean and all this kind of stuff. But I might refer to things, let's just say, or there might be things about the poem. I'm going to try not to laugh at some points when I'm reading this poem, because you'll see what I mean. You'll see where this poem goes some interesting places. So I'm going to read this poem out. It's going to be weird hearing, I don't know, I've got a feeling I've got the wrong kind of voice for reading this poem completely, but that's the way it goes. But I think there's plenty for you to enjoy about this poem on the first listen, but I think there's loads to get at if we start going over the poem after that. So we're going to read the poem now. This is Goblin Market by Christina Rossetti. Morning and evening, maids heard the goblins cry. Come by our orchard fruits, come by, come by, apples and quinces, lemons and oranges, plump unpecked cherries, melons and raspberries, bloom down-cheeked peaches, swart-headed mulberries, wild free-born cranberries, crab apples, dewberries, pineapples, blackberries, apricots, strawberries, all ripe together in summer weather, morns that pass by, fair eaves that fly, come by, come by, our grapes fresh from the vine, pomegranates, Full and fine dates and sharp bullises, Rare pears and green gauges Damsons and bilberries Taste them and try Currants and gooseberries Bright fire-like barberries fixed to fill your mouth Citrums from the south Sweet to tongue and sound to eye Come by, come by Evening by evening Among the brookside rushes Laura bowed her head to hear Lizzie veiled her blushes crouching close together in the cooling weather with clasping arms and cautioning lips with tingling cheeks and finger-tips lie close laura said pricking up her golden head we must not look at goblin men we must not buy their fruits who knows upon what soil they fed their hungry thirsty roots come by called the goblins hobbling down the glen Oh, cried Lizzie, Laura, Laura, you should not peep at goblin men. Lizzie covered up her eyes covered close lest they should look. Laura reared her glossy head and whispered like the restless brook Look, Lizzie, look down the glen tramp little men. One hauls a basket, one bears a plate, one lugs a golden dish of many pounds weight. How fair the vine must grow whose grapes are so luscious. How warm the wind must blow through those fruit bushes. No, said Lizzie. No, no, no. Their offers should not charm us. Their evil gifts would harm us. She thrust a dimpled finger in each ear, shut eyes, and ran. Curious Laura chose to linger, wondering at each merchant man. One had a cat's face. One whisked a tail. One tramped at a rat's pace. One crawled like a snail. One like a wombat, proud, obtuse, and furry. One like a rattle, tumbled, hurry, scurry. She heard a voice like voice of Loves, cooing altogether, they sounded kind and full of loves in the pleasant weather. Laura stretched her gleaming neck like a rush-embedded swan, like a lily from the beck, like a moonlit poplar branch, like a vessel at the launch when its last restraint is gone. Backwards up the mossy glen, turned and trooped the goblin men with their shrill recreat, repeated cry, come by, come by when they reached where laura was they stood stock-still upon the moss leering at each other brother with queer brother signalling each other brother with sly brother one set his basket down one reared his plate one began to weave a crown of tendrils leaves and rough nuts brown men sell not such in any town one heaved the golden weight of dish and fruit to offer her come by come by was still their cry laura stared but did not stir longed but had no money the whisk merchant bade her taste in tones as smooth as honey the cat-face purred the rat-face spoke a word of welcome and the snail paste even was heard one parrot-voiced and jolly cried pretty goblin still for pretty polly one whistled like a bird but sweet Tooth Laura spoke in haste, Good folk, I have no coin to take were to purloin, I have no copper in my purse, I have no silver either, And all my gold is on the furs that shakes in windy weather Above the rusty heather. You have much gold upon your head, they answered altogether. Buy from us with a golden curl, she clipped a precious golden lock, She dropped a tear more rare than pearl, Then sucked their fruit globes fair or red sweeter than honey from the rock stronger than man rejoicing wine clearer than water flowed that juice she'd never tasted such before how should it cloy with length of use she sucked and sucked and sucked the more fruits which that unknown orchard bore she sucked until her lips were sore then flung the emptied rinds away and gathered up one kernel stone and knew not was it night or day as she turned home alone lizzie met her at the gate full of wise upbraidings dear you should not stay so late twilight is not good for maidens should not loiter in the glen in the haunts of goblin men do you not remember genie how she met them in the moonlight took their gifts both choice and many ate their fruits and wore their flowers plucked from bowers where summer ripens at all hours but ever in the moonlight she pined and pined away sought them by night and day found them no more but dwindled and grew grey then fell with the first snow while to this day no grass will grow where she lies low i planted daisies there a year ago that never blow you should not loiter so. Nay, hush, said Laura. Nay, hush, my sister. I ate and ate my fill, yet my mouth waters still. Tomorrow night I will buy more and kissed her. Have done with sorrow. I'll bring you plums tomorrow, fresh on their mother twigs, cherries worth getting you cannot Think what figs my teeth have met in, what melons I see cold piled on a dish of gold. Too huge for me to hold, what peaches with a velvet nap, pellucid grapes without one seed. Odorous indeed must be the mead whereon they grow and pure the wave they drink with lilies at the brink and sugar sweet their sap. Golden head by golden head, like two pigeons in one nest, folded in each other's wings, they lay down in their curtained bed, like two blossoms on one stem, like two flakes of new-fallen snow, like two wands of ivory tipped with gold for awful kings. Moon and stars gazed in at them, wind sang to them lullaby, lumbering owls forbore to fly, not a bat flapped to and fro round their rest, cheek to cheek and breast to breast. Locked together in one nest Early in the morning When the first cock crowed his warning Neat like bees as sweet and busy Laura rose with Lizzie Fetched in honey Milked the cows Aired and set to rights the house kneaded cakes of whitest wheat Cakes for dainty mouths to eat Next churned butter Whipped up cream Fed their poultry Sat and sewed Talked as modest maidens would Lizzie with an open heart laura in an absent dream one content one sick in part one warbling for the mere bright day's delight one longing for the night at length slow evening came they went with pitchers to the reedy brook Lizzie most placid in her look, Laura most like a leaping flame. They drew the gurgling water from its deep. Lizzie plucked purple and rich golden flags, then turning homeward, said, The sunset flushes these furthest loftiest crags. Come, Laura, not another maiden lags, no wilful squirrel wags. The beasts and birds are fast asleep. But Laura loitered still among the rushes and said the bank was steep. And said the hour was early still, The dew not fallen, the wind not chill, Listening ever but not catching The customary cry, come by, come by, With its iterated jingle of sugar-baited words, Not for all her watching, once discerning, Even one goblin, racing, whisking, tumbling, hobbling, Let alone the herds that used to tramp along the glen In groups or single of brisk fruit-merchant men. Till Lizzie urged, oh laura come i hear the fruit call but i dare not look you should not loiter longer at this brook come with me home the stars rise the moon bends her arc each glow-worm winks her spark let us get home before the night grows dark for clouds may gather though this is summer weather put out the lights and drench us through then if we lost our way what should we do laura turned cold as stone to find her sister heard that cry alone that goblin cry come by our fruits come by must she then buy no more such dainty fruit must she no more such succuous pasture find gone deaf and blind her tree of life drooped from the root she said not one word in her heart sore ache but peering through the dimness nought discerning trudged home her pitcher dripping all the way so crept to bed and lay silent till lizzie slept then sat up in a passionate yearning and gnashed her teeth for balked desire and wept as if her heart would break day after day night after night laura kept watch in vain in sullen silence of exceeding pain She never caught again the goblin cry, come by, come by, she never spied the goblin men hawking their fruits along the glen, but when the moon waxed bright her hair grew thin and grey she dwindled as the fair full moon doth turn to swift decay and burn her fire away. One day remembering her kernel stone she set it by a wall that faced the south, Dewed it with tears, hoped for a root, watched for a waxing shoot, but there came none. It never saw the sun, it never felt the trickling moisture run, while with sunk eyes and faded mouth she dreamed of melons as a traveller sees false waves in desert drouth, with shade of leaf-crowned trees and burns the thirstier in the sandful breeze. She no more swept the house, tended the fowls or cows, fetched honey, kneaded cakes of wheat, brought water from the brook, but sat down listless in the chimney nook and would not eat. Tender Lizzie could not bear to watch her sister's cankerous care yet not to share she night and morning caught the goblins cry come buy our orchard fruits come by come by beside the brook along the glen she heard the tramp of goblin men the yoke and stir Poor laura could not hear Longed to buy fruit to comfort her but feared to pay too dear she thought of Jeanie in her grave who should have been a bride but who, for joys, brides hoped to have, fell sick and died in her gay prime in earliest winter time, with the first glazing rime, with the first snowfall of crisp winter time, till Laura, dwindling, seemed knocking at death's door. Then Lizzie weighed no more, better and worse, but put a silver penny in her purse, kissed Laura, crossed the heath with clumps of firs at twilight, halted by the brook, and for the first time in her life began to listen and look. Laughed every goblin when they spied her peeping, came towards her hobbling, flying, running, leaping, puffing and blowing, chuckling, clapping, crowing, clucking and gobbling, mopping and mowing, full of airs and graces, pulling wry faces, did demure grimaces, cat-like and rat-like, rattle and wombat-like, snail-paced in a hurry, parrot-voiced and whistler, helter-skelter, hurry-scurry, chattering like magpies, fluttering like pigeons, gliding like fishes, hugged her and kissed her, squeezed and caressed stretched up their dishes, panniers and plates look at our apples, russet and done bob at our cherries, bite at our peaches, citrons and dates grapes for the asking, pears red with basking out in the sun, plums on their twigs pluck them and suck from pomegranates, figs good lord, said Lizzie, mindful of Jeanie give me much and many held out her apron tossed them her penny nay take a seat with us honour and eat with us they answered grinning our feast is but beginning night yet is early warm and dew pearly, wakeful and starry such fruits as these no man can hurry half their bloom would fly half their dew would dry half their flavour would pass by sit down and feast of us be welcome guest of us cheer you and rest of us thank you said lizzie but one waits at home alone for me so without further parleying if you will not sell me any of your fruits though much and many give me back my silver penny i tossed you for a fee They began to scratch their pates, no longer wagging, purring, but visibly demurring, grunting and snarling. One called her proud, cross-gained, uncivil. Their tones waxed loud, their looks were evil, lashing their tails. They trod and hustled her, elbowed and jostled her, clawed with their nails, barking, mewing, hissing, mocking. Tore her ground and soiled her stocking, twitched her hair out by the roots, swamped upon her tender feet, held her hands and squeezed their throats against her mouth to make her eat. White and golden Lizzie stood like a lily in a flood, like a rock of blue-veined stone lashed by tides obstetriously, like a beacon left alone in a whoring, roaring sea, sending up a golden fire like a fruit-crowned orange tree, white with blossoms, honey, sweet, sore beset by wasp and bee, like a royal virgin town topped with gilded dome and spire, close beleaguered by a fleet mad to tug her standard down one may lead a horse to water twenty cannot make him drink though the cuffed and caught her, coaxed and fought her, bullied and besought her, scratched her and pinched her black as ink, kicked and knocked her, mauled and mocked her, Lizzie uttered not a word, would not open lip from lip, lest they should cram a mouthful in, but laughed in heart to feel the drip of juice that syruped all her face and lodged in dimples of her chin and streaked her neck and quaked like curd, at last the evil people worn out by her resistance flung back her penny kicked their fruits along whichever road they took not leaving root or stone or shoot some writhed into the ground some dived into the brook with ring and ripple some scudded on the gale without a sound some vanished in the distance in a smart ache tingle lizzie went her way Knew not was it night or day, sprang up the bank, tore through the firs, threaded copse and dingle, and heard her penny jingle bouncing in her purse. Its bounce was music to her ear, she ran and ran, as if she feared some goblin man dogged her with jibe or curse, or something else. But not one goblin scurried after, nor was she pricked by fear, the kind heart made her windy pace that urged her home quite out of breath with haste and inward laughter. She cried, Laura, up the garden, did you miss me? Come and kiss me, never mind my bruises, hug me, kiss me, suck my juices, squeezed from goblin fruits for you, goblin pulp and goblin dew, eat me, drink me, love me, Laura, make much of me, for your sake I have braved the glen and had to do with goblin merchant men. Laura started from her chair, flung her arms up in the air, clutched her hair. Lizzie, Lizzie, have you tasted for my sake the fruit forbidden? Must your light like mine be hidden? Your young life like mine be wasted, undone in mine undoing, and ruined in my ruin? Thirsty, cankered, goblin-ridden? She clung about her sister, kissed and kissed and kissed her. Tears once again refreshed her sunken eyes, dropping like rain after long, sultry drouth. Shaking with aguish fear and pain, she kissed and kissed her with a hungry mouth her lips began to scorch that juice was wormwood to her tongue she loathed the feast writhing as one possessed she leaped and sung rent all her robe and wrung her hands in lamentable haste and beat her breast her locks streamed like the torch borne by a racer at full speed or like the mane of horses in their flight or like an eagle when she stems the light straight toward the sun or like a caged thing freed or like a flying flag when armies run swift fire spread through her veins knocked at her heart met the fire smouldering there and overbore its lesser flames she gorged on bitterness without a name ah fool to choose such part of soul-consuming care Sense failed in the mortal strife, like watchtower of a town which an earthquake shatters down, like a lightning-stricken mast, like a wind-uprooted tree spun about, like a foam-topped water spout, cast down headlong in the sea she fell at last, pleasure passed and anguish passed, is it death or is it life, life out of death, that night long Lizzie, watched by her, counted her pulses flagging stir felt for her breath held water to her lips and cooled her face with tears and fanless leaves and when the first birds chirped about their eaves and early reapers plodded to the place of golden sheaves and dew-wet grass bowed in the morning wind so brisk to pass and new buds with new day opened of cup-like lilies on the stream laura awoke as from a dream laughed in the innocent old way hugged lizzie but not twice or thrice her gleaming locks showed not one thread of grey her breath was sweet as may and light danced in her eyes days weeks months years afterwards when both were wives with children of their own their mother hearts beset with fears their lives bound up in tender lives laura would call the little ones and tell them of her early prime those pleasant days long gone of not returning time would talk about the haunted glen the wicked quaint fruit merchant men their fruits like honey to the throat but poison in the blood men sell not such in any town would tell them how her sister stood in deadly peril to do her good and win the fiery antidote then joining hands to little hands would bid them cling together for there is no friend like a sister in calm or stormy weather to cheer one on the tedious way to fetch one if one goes astray to lift one if one totters down to strengthen whilst one stands that was Goblin Market by Christina Rossetti. That took me a long time to read it as well. Oh my goodness. I'd say we've got about 20 minutes left, haven't we, for me to, to analyse this poem and wander off on one. I think we're on to a long one today. So let's just look through the sense of that poem, the argument, the story that's being told. Then I think we'll look a little bit at the form of the poem and then we'll just get stuck into the imagery and the metaphor and what the hell was going on there. So... The story that is told in that poem, there are two sisters, Lizzie and Laura. Every day, as the sun goes down, they overhear these traveling goblin merchants saying, come by, come by. And they have wondrous fruits. Now, they don't look at them. Most of the time, they don't look at them. But this time, while Lizzie could hear them, she refused to look at them. But Laura did look at them. And of course, at the end of the day, I guess when they were walking off, Lizzie carried on her head. Laura fell behind and she she decided to approach the goblin, the goblin merchants. And, the, you know, they're calling out this roll call of fruits and, and they say, you know, you just got to pay us a penny. But she didn't have any money. So she gave them a little lock of her hair because that's what they wanted. And then and then she got to just eat all this delicious, delicious fruit. And it was a wonderful sensual experience for her. And she was so happy as she ran home, as her sister said, you know, I'll be careful. And, and she told her sister, Lizzie, no, Lizzie, don't worry. It's amazing. You've got to come with me tomorrow. That's where I'm going. And so it turns out, you know, that, that, uh, she runs out again at the end of the day, but she can't hear them. She can't see them. And at some point in the story, I forgot where already, but they speak of another woman who also ate of the goblin's fruit and just, withered away and died a young death and died to such an extent that nothing no grass grew from her grave and even planting daisies there they would not blow whatever that means i don't know and so laura suddenly realizes on returning of seeing that there are none of them that her sister can still hear them and probably can still see them and so laura because she has eaten the fruit she no longer can see or hear the goblins. She she ate them assuming that she could just keep going back and have her fill. But she can't. That's it. Job done. She's paid her money. She's had her fruit and it's done. Whereas Lizzie can still hear it. Now, Lizzie remains virtuous. She doesn't respond to the call of the goblins. Laura becomes grey haired. She loses her, her spirit, her will to live. And she begins to diminish. And of course, Lizzie fears that Laura will go the way of the young woman who uh, preceded her in in folklore or whatever, in in, in whatever tale was doing around, you know, who, who who died after eating the goblins' fruit. So she's fearful that it will happen to her sister. So in the end, she feels, well, oh, maybe I can buy some fruit, not have it myself, take it back to her, and maybe that will help her out. But of course, what what happens is, is that... um. The goblins don't want any part of that. So when she sees them, they surround her. They say, come by, come by. They try to tempt her. And she says, oh, I want to I buy from you. They say, fine. Well, they don't say fine. They say, you've got to eat it here. It will go off. It will become rotten if you take it. You must have it now. Otherwise, it will be spoiled. She says, no, 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 no. I want this fruit. I want to take it back to my sister. Will you give me back my penny? And they won't give her back her penny. So they become angry. And uh, they try to... They, they, Bite her and they scratch her and they do all kinds of things they shove the fruits in her face they try to cram it into her mouth um she retains her virtue she speaks about how even though she's defiled she retains her virtue and and she does not even you know lick a, a drop from her lips but she ends up covered in all this goblin fruit juice and in the end they give up they they, they vanish off into the river into the ground up the lane kicking their fruit up the lane they throw a penny back at her and then she thinks ha 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 she runs back to her sister look at me I'm covered in juice covered in juice come and have some of this juice come and suck this juice off me and so her sister goes, sister's very happy. She's like, firstly, she thinks, oh no, have you, have you also eaten the fruit? Oh no, you're going to be like me now. And she's like, no, I haven't eaten the fruit. It's fine. Just come and have some of this fruit juice now. And of course it's disgusting to the sister. She runs at her, but she eats it. And it's, no, it's not, it's rotten. It's there. um, But then uh, and then she kind of falls back. She retires to her bed after not being satisfied by the juices of the fruits that she'd been able to lick and suck from her sister. And it seems like she's going to die. Lizzie keeps a vigil by Laura. But then Laura, Laura recovers. And almost immediately through the night when morning comes, Laura is back to her old self and her sister, her sister's act has saved her. And then it just cuts to an end saying that, you know, that they both get married, have kids, and they both remember that sisterhood is the best thing in the whole world ever and you should always look out for your sister. Yay! And that's the end of the poem. Could leave it there, couldn't we? But, but you know, there is so much to discuss. So let's have a little bit of a look at the meter and then we'll de- delve into the imagery. So the meter, I would not say that the meter is all over the place but the meter varies throughout the poem this is kind of a quite a victorian development now i think the meter really i mean most people say, this is again people say that just uh, that, that rossetti she just had an amazing ear and so she really could just pour out this music from herself this musical poetry and perhaps was not doing the equivalent of counting fingers, counting stressed syllables, but there's a strong metrical quality to the poem. Now it was condemned. Most of the poem was very popular in the time, apart from one John Ruskin. (laughs) We might go into a detail about him, but it certainly varies. He didn't like it. He felt that meter should carry on, you know, in in a regular sense and not vary in such a haphazard way. But I think one, I, I think the meter really works. The meter tends to open up the lines, become a little bit longer stress wise and a bit bit more expansive in the more narrative parts but whenever we're getting to the points where someone is speaking or singing especially the goblins it becomes much tighter and we enter into something which i'd call um when the goblins are listing their fruits a lot of it happens in um dactylic diameter that's a terrible thing to say isn't it Like, like like you know I, when I say this, I, I'm aware am. when I say dactylic dimeter, I'm just alienating people already. So let me explain what dactylic dimeter is. Dimeter means there's two, two feet in the line, two metric feet. And normally a metrical foot has one stressed syllable, so one sort of strongly pronounced syllable. Um and then it has some unstressed syllables as well. So the dactylic foot is an unstressed is a stressed syllable followed by two unstressed syllables. It kind of goes bum baba. So when I talk about iambic pentameter, as I always say in previous podcasts um, it's an unstressed syllable followed by a stressed syllable, de da di da di da 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 And we often say that it's quite conversational, especially iambic pentameter, which is five of those feet one after the other. Now with the dactylic one, it's quite tricky to write in dactyls, I think. And in this dactylic dimeter, so it sounds it sort of goes bum dum bum dum bum badum bumba dum like that. Um, now dactylic language, you might recognize, I think, one example I like to use is Lucy in the sky with diamonds. da, 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 Okay. That last bit isn't a dactyl, but you know, it da, 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 That's the sound of a dactyl basically. Um, so it's dactylic, um, diameter, um, dactylic. One way of remembering a lot of these stress symbols is, stress syllables is, um, that they sound, the name sounds like what they are. So an iamb from iambic pentameter is a sort of i am, so it's an unstressed syllable followed by a stressed syllable. I am, um, whereas dactyl it's not quite the same because it follows the sound dactylic. So da- the word dactylic is dactylic. So there we go. Also, when I hear dactyl, I think of um, I think of bird-like reptiles in dinosaur films that go because that's the noise a pterodactyl makes and that's just true because you ask any five-year-old and they'll tell you that i've strayed past it but see what i like about this poem is those aspects where it really tightens up and there's so i think that the dactyl was quite artificial sounding and it is more musical sounding it doesn't sound like casual speech so when these goblin little bits where the goblins are sort of talking about their fruit and listing all these fruits it has that song-like quality to it and that artificial quality to it and it does not sound like normal speech. And I think that really works and I think it really works that it It shifts and changes but it always becomes more song-like and artificial and intense when the goblins are speaking and certain um, passages as well take on that that metrical quality. So you have a sort of fluctuations between these very intense scenes, very intense elements of description And then these perhaps scenes where it's just calming down for a moment. Um, I don't know how long it took me to read that poem. I read it pretty quickly, probably quicker than I wanted to, um, but very aware, perhaps. (laughs) But I don't have a lot of time to do this. So that is a little note on the meter. I could go into a lot more detail about the meter. But one thing John Ruskin did not like about the poem was the meter. Now, John Ruskin had a few other things to say about the poem and I, I think we're all getting to what you want me what probably as a listener would like me to start talking about um but just to go quickly into some of my notes um actually this is from i i didn't i didn't i, I i'm gonna fess up and say that i didn't um i didn't go direct to the source for ruskin's analysis i went to the poetry foundation website and uh they're fantastic sort of long biographical and analytical article about Christina Rossetti. But uh, Ruskin makes me me laugh. I mean, I'm I'm, near, I'm around the Camberwell area. So Ruskin's like, you know, he's one of my, he's, he's, he's my boy in a way. But I do find, I need to learn more about Ruskin. But I keep on finding myself not siding with Ruskin in a lot of his issues. And so John Ruskin, um, who was an sort of art critic and a sort of philosopher and a naturalist, um, he, uh, he Dante Gabriel, basically, so Dante Gabriel Rossetti sent him the poem so that he could send it on to the poet Thackeray so that it could get published. But Ruskin sort of had no praise for it. He, he acknowledged the poem's beauty and power. This is from the Poetry Foundation website, who's sort of paraphrasing and directly quoting him, but asserted that it was unpublishable because it was so full of quaintnesses and offences Adding, a regular measure is the chief calamity of modern poetry. Your sister should exercise herself in the severest commonplace of meter until she can write as the public like. He's such a prude, I think, isn't he? There's a story which is probably apocryphal about John Ruskin, that he um he had a terrible shock on his wedding night on seeing his wife um, unrobed. Um because his entire reference point of the female nude body and the female reproductive organs, um his point of reference was Greek statues and classical um interpretations of the female anatomy, and I think reality gave him a bit of a shock. <laughs> anyway, um and that image of Ruskin I think is stuck with me and a lot of other people, even though it might not be true, but it seems to sum him up. So when he's talking about these quaintnesses and offenses, what does he mean? I think we all know what he means. Now, it's meant to be that Rossetti, let's get into the imagery. I know you've been waiting for this. So Rossetti said that the um, poem wasn't allegorical. And of course, everyone doesn't. No one believes her. No one believes. Everyone feels that the poem is allegorical. I've spoken before about how allegory, allegory and metaphor. Allegory is kind of part of the family of metaphor. But metaphor doesn't necessarily have to be something standing in place for something else. I think metaphor just means that we don't necessarily take something as literal when we read it, that we can derive meanings from it that aren't necessarily from the literal telling of the thing in itself. So we sort of derive subtexts and contexts from reading this poem. Now, there are different schools of criticism and different ways of looking at it. The poem Rossetti. While she's always been kind of popular, certainly had a a resurgence in popularity from the 70s when when feminists looked at her her work and sort of looked for feminist subtexts to her poems. Um, There's uh, people also looking for sort of homoerotic subtexts within this poem, which certainly can be found. And other people feel that, so other people have looked at it like they've used the pre-Raphaelite imagery. So if you ever see some pre-Raphaelite paintings, they're quite Baroque in a way, there's lots of details, lots of fruit, lots of wonderful fabrics, lots of uh, just very lush looking paintings the great details in the paintings as well and the poem has this kind of powerful imagery which is full of detail as well especially when these fruits are being listed and all these images are being listed and the women in the poem have a very pre-raphaelite quality to them as well so the pre-raphaelite paintings often have these sort of blonde women or red-haired women dark-haired women as well but the memorable ones tend to be these sort of red-haired or blonde-haired women Um, very pure, very chaste. Now here's where we might diverge because some of the descriptions of the sisters, I think she was aiming at chasteness when they're lying breast to breast. And while she's talking about sisters, I think this is where people start finding homoerotic subtext and context within the poem, in their readings of the poem. Um, So there are these very interesting images of the two sisters who are just living together. don't know anything else about their living arrangements. They're just living together. Um, and as unwholesome as it is there there certainly is a very sensual aspect to their relationship with each other perhaps they are to be fair the depictions of their beauty and their pureness it shows them as innocence and maybe there's an eden quality to that of the story Um, so we talk about sensuality i think one thing i have to point out when when we're talking about how poems change in their meaning. Um, because of the differences in cultures that are looking at the poem in today's day and age it's really interesting because back then this is a poem that mentions all these fruits and you know these fruits from all over the world that just happen to fall upon you know the the converge in this little shire or wherever the, the sisters are living and um and they're seen as the ultimate kind of objects of temptation, you could say, of sensualness. Whereas kind of from where we are, it's more like you five a day, isn't it? <laughs> it's more like, oh, eat lots of fruit. If you ate all that fruit, someone would say, so your doctor would like congratulate you. You'd be like, you know, if you're eating lots of fruit, it's how you show you're being good on Instagram, isn't it? You know, you might eat a, a dozen donuts or something like that and then like not take a photograph of that and then take a picture of a big bowl of fruit that you've just eaten instead so I like how sort of times have changed that much but I can imagine at the time there's something very exotic about all the fruits they probably don't all find there you know we don't have we live in a time where we have supermarkets and poly tunnels growing stuff all year round there certainly would have been perhaps a more seasonal quality certain fruits that certainly wouldn't grow in this country and have to be imported at great expense and um, others, obviously, that would only appear in certain seasons. So we understand the sort of, we don't, the, the the goblin men have become, this is probably something that's quite miraculous. You know, these men that turn up in the middle of nowhere with all these fruits, these goblin men. Whereas now we have it all in, in just some some retail park. Uh, orbiting the local town so there's differences there right right away in interpretation and we might choose something different in order to kind of have this licentious sensual tempting quality to it but back then it was all about the fruit so yeah we have fruit the goblin men themselves i mean so so one allegory uh, one allegorical way that we might interpret the poem is that the um the the sense you know the the men uh, i mean yeah I mean, the men represent male sexuality and the pleasures that men can give to women. But the men aren't very sexy. They're freaky and weird. And maybe that was on purpose. Maybe men are horrible. Maybe the sensual enjoyment. Well, I'm saying this as a man, so I know it's true. But maybe the sensual enjoyment of straight women or bi women, of men, um, is is something that is, you know, the sensual enjoyment is obscuring how bleh we are, how ugly we are. I don't know. I don't know. But the men in this poem, they're not beautiful. They're like rats and parrots and stuff like that. So the men aren't sexy, are they? But the fruit is sexy. The thing that they're offering is sexy. And again, okay, I'm trying to trying to keep this. I'm trying to keep this clean for your kids. So there are are descriptions of Laura eating the fruit. Little bits I nearly laughed at. And I think we both know what you were paying attention. I was paying attention. Maybe felt a bit self-conscious when I read out some of those lines. Maybe it was weird hearing lines like that read by a guy like me. It could be that those lines didn't have those kind of aspects to them in Victorian times. I doubt that, by the way. Maybe she didn't mean them. I don't know. Maybe she was lost in a reverie when she wrote it. I mean, this is a woman. I think here's an interesting bit of subtext here historical context even and that is that um Rossetti obviously she became more religious and more devout throughout her life and in the book Goblin Market and other poems there are lots of stories of fallen women and the temptations of men. And men are always appearing like brutes and monsters in the poems. And Goblin Market, unlike a lot of other poems within the volume, Goblin Market kind of has a happy ending of of, of, of the sister helping her sister, whereas the other poems don't. And I think it's not by accident. I mean, but, but one of the things... Rossetti, I mean, she was housebound a lot of the time and she couldn't always work she wanted to become one of Florence Nightingale's nurses but she couldn't because of her health issues but she did help out in a Magdalena Institute for Fallen Women now anyone who's Irish will be shuddering right away because we know what those places are now I don't know if they were the same in Victorian London maybe they were So women who had been, you know, if you were a woman and you were seen as fallen. So I guess if you had been enjoying carnal pleasures in one way or another, be it maybe that you were a sex worker or maybe the woman was just someone who was having relationships out of wedlock. I don't know. But, you know, I know how it worked in Ireland. I'm not too sure how it worked in Victorian England. But these weren't nice institutions. But but still, you get this idea of these images that now of fallen women and uh, maybe that's it men are horrible and they hypnotize you i don't know now the the there you could say that the, the, the um, feminist reading and maybe the, the sort of homoerotic reading of the poem reads it differently the women are presented in, in a very sensual and beautiful way and they sort of engage with each other in different ways whereas the men are not the, the men offer sort of pleasures and also there is a transaction at heart with the men as well, and people pay attention to that, be it a lock of golden hair or the coin. So Laura's golden hair or Lizzie's coin, they both have to offer something to, you know, there's more of a, a cynical almost that women, that there is a financial transaction and this is, you know, a market as well a traveling market so there is that as well so you know there's even marxist interpretations because of this women becoming alienated you could say um from their own sensuality and exploited so um one other way of reading the poem because i'm pretty sure i'm running out of time so let me have a look at this about 10 minutes I reckon okay it's the Tractarian I don't think I'm gonna be able to go off on one very much today so we'll look at the Tractarian reading of it and that is that there is so yes with the sisters we've already sort of seen that the way that they're kind of lying breast to breast could be seen as their innocence but maybe there's some other subtext but of course now we get to the bit where one sister has to lick and suck juice off her and her sister offers herself in that way now, another now again, there are erotic interpretations of that. And it's quite hard not to see that when you're reading it out and quite hard not to feel awkward about your neighbours when you're bellowing out those lines and you're flat in the middle of the afternoon. But what happens there is that the. Um, it's is in, in. So in the Christian way is that she's actually it's almost like she's made an offering of herself to the men, but she manages to remain chaste. And then she makes an offering of herself to her sister. So there's almost a Eucharistic aspect of it. So in the way that maybe Christ dies for the sin of the world. And then in the Eucharist, we kind of eat and drink Christ in order to be forgiven ourselves and to partake in the the resurrection and all of those other aspects of Catholicism, I guess, Christianity. There's something that the the the, the 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 figure has sort of descended into the world of sin, but has remained pure, and the the fruit has sort of become a medicine, a bitter medicine that restores her sister. So there is that quality. So there could be a kind of Christian aspect to it. But in this world of because then they go on to be good wives and to look after each other, and they have virtuous lives, and all the bodices are kind of buttoned up again. As I heard Roger McGough say at the end of that particular poetry please episode, yeah. And then, so there's that. I'm going to leave it to you guys. I haven't got much more to say about it. I could talk about this poem a lot. And I understand that like, the, the reading of the poem took up the longest part of this podcast. But I think I am running low on time. So I'm going to throw it over to our good friend, Master Rick Flair, so that I can wander off on one about some of the aspects of this poem. Take it away, Rick. Wander off on one. Woo. Thank you, Rick. What what interpretation is right? I'm sure I've wandered off on one of his sense already. So we have a few interpretations. What interpretation of the poem is right? And if you ask me, you know the answer already. None of them. None of them are right. Who knows? Why? Even if we found a letter written to someone by Rossetti saying, You know, I didn't. That's how she spoke, by the way. Honest. You know, I didn't. Say this was an allegory, it actually was an allegory. It was exactly the Tractarian analysis of the Eucharistic qualities of a daughter becoming untainted by sin and making bitter medicine that heals her sister with it. Now, that was as that is a very realistic recreation of Christina. Is actually, it's maybe that her illness changed her voice. I heard that, or read that even, so um, maybe I don't know, she wouldn't have thought like that. So, that could be, let's say we found a letter that interpret. Maybe we had another letter. Maybe Rossetti wrote another letter and say, actually, I'm a gay woman. And I wanted to to write about two women that are, that are lovers, but I couldn't. So I made them sisters instead. But I wanted to hide the context, the, the, the context within the poem. And I wanted to divert attention. Maybe that was it. All I'm saying is she could have written any of these. Maybe she just said, I, I can't remember where she is in history in relation to Marx, but maybe she did sort of say, actually, I'm, I'm protesting against capitalism in this poem. It would matter if we discovered something like that. But it doesn't change things because what literary theory is about when we interpret a text, it often isn't about the, yes... Part of the information we use maybe is the intent of the author, if that is available. But the intent of the author is not the be all and end all of the meaning of a piece of work. And my interpretation of meaning is often, as I've already said, meaning changes. Different works of art will meet different cultures and different cultures Even if there are some very obvious beats within the poem, different cultures will and different mindsets will interpret poems in different ways. And meaning is what happens when information meets, I guess, an information recognition system or when a work of art meets a mindset or a cultural theory. Meaning is the friction that leaps up from the two of them. There is no definitive reason meaning of a piece of work there are only interpretations and some interpretations are maybe more compelling in certain times and certain locales than they are in others and that's all we can say so if ever you see there's videos on YouTube with annoying titles that say the real meaning of Blade Runner or something or the real meaning of this there is no real meaning meaning changes there could be individual intentions of the artist for instance it could be that some of the erotic aspects of the poem weren't intended by Rossetti. But that doesn't stop those aspects being erotic, does it? No, people will always have that interpretation and there's nothing wrong with having that interpretation. That was me going off on one in in a much shorter way than usual, but that's just me saying that there is no... And so be be wary about this, because sometimes people analyse works of art in this sort of gotcha way. And I don't think it's the same as sort of excavating something and finding something. There are different interpretations of works of art. So if someone does sort of take a work of art and say there's some disturbing subtext of this poem or this work of art, we shouldn't read it anymore. It's not that there is no validity to that, but always understand what meaning is and how meaning can change with audiences. And a work of art doesn't belong to the artist, apart from copyright and stuff like that. When you are someone engaging with the work of art and deriving your own meaning from it, there's always, that's almost the point when the artist stops owning it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, then if you haven't listened to the others, go and listen to them. They're, they're, they're all really good. Um, but if, if you feel that there's other friends of yours that would be enriched by having this podcast in their life or something for them to listen to, then please recommend it to them either in your face-to-face contact Um, don't kind of shove this podcast in their ears like a goblin trying to shove melons in the mouth of a virtuous sister make it you know just say this is really good but yeah share it that would be great thank you for listening i'll see you next time thank you bye bye